Sam and Moses, a short story by E.A. Sandilands. Far, far away from his home over the billow, no one to visit his bedside to weep, yet he rests on his still lowly pillow, peacefully sweet, fully the last dreamless sleep. Mary Charlotte Parvin. The present. It was a chilly morning as I stepped out of the front door. Charlie pulled on the lead as I fumbled to close it. It was chilly and damp. The, co the cold grey morning started to penetrate the brain. It pulled me into grateful wakefulness, as it always did. We cut through the close and across the road. The debris from last night's fried chicken seemed irresistible to Charlie, and I dragged her along. I tried to get us both to pay attention as we waited for the cars to pass and made our way across the road. There was a light mist across the cemetery. It gave it a cerebral air. As we went through the wrought iron gates, I stooped down to release the lead, ignoring the sign. I felt in my pocket for the little back bag, an essential part of the morning routine. The sticks were wet and muddy and cold as I threw them for Charlie. She rang with her usual boundless energy and enthusiasm. It was in sharp contrast with my own semi-conscious state. I rubbed my hands to bring back the feeling, peeling the mud from my fingers, and we broke away from the main path, tacking away from the other dog walk as I tried to head off any small confrontation before they could occur. We were in the older part of the cemetery. Nature had returned, although it was slowly going into hibernation. Winter was approaching. Some headstones lay flat. The names, dates and messages of love retained the drops of rain in the eroded carved letters. Other stones were more upright, but not always perpendicular. The angles were of various levels of precariousness. Some looked about to fall. There were names from forgotten families, grafters who created the town in rougher times. There were more familiar names, those of families who'd stayed and created life afresh, seeking better lives for each generation. The layers of history felt palpable. One stone lay flat, the sandstone cracked, the surface weathered. My eyes were drawn to it. It was edged with feathers from rooks and pigeons. The quills had been pushed with care into the dark earth. Mixed among the feathers were bright flowers, marigolds and other annuals, carefully tended. They must have been put there recently, given how late it was in the season. My mind went to Leonard Cohen's Suzanne, wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters. This was the grave of Moses Carpenter. I'd not noticed it before. I wondered why that was. But the truth was I didn't always pay full attention to the world around me, particularly first thing in the morning. My head was normally full of anxieties about the day, or songs, old songs. It made me wonder what else I'd missed. What else did I miss in my daily, semi-dreamlike state? Moses was clearly loved, was buried far from his home. The gravestone was carved with lengthy verse and talked of the respect people had for him. Surely they could hardly have known him. So why was it that people at that time cared so much? What was the impact he had? What hold did he have over them? How had he come to earn their respect? He must have touched people's hearts to inspire such beautiful poetry. An information board gave details of his life. Why did I not know the story? I felt I really should know it. I wondered if people around me, friends and neighbours, knew the story. Something momentous had clearly happened. Thoughts of Moses and my unanswered questions stayed with me for the rest of the day. They wouldn't go away. After all this time, Moses had captured my imagination. The past, setting off. 12th of August, 1889, Middlesbrough, England. Sam woke to hear one of his brothers hacking cough. He heard it a few times during the night. His sleep had been fitful. It was semi-light as he padded through into the kitchen. He tried not to wake the others in the house. The remains on the table meant his dad must be up before him. 
would already be out to start the day at work. Sam picked up some bread and bit into its hard crust. He tentatively checked the teapot to see if it was still warm. Not too bad. He poured a cup and moved across the window. The low sun had started to find its way through the panes and cast a shadow on the floor. The day looked full of promise. In the holidays, days often did. It was Sam's favourite time of the year by a long way. No school, just chapel once a week. Freedom. He went back to the bedroom, moving slowly and quietly so as not to disturb his brothers. He picked up his clothes and boots, dressed in the kitchen, putting his boots on at the door and heading into the street. His mum would be happy that he was outside. She'd shoo his brothers outside later if they were still in bed when she was up and moving. The sun was warm, but the air strained is still cold on the skin. He turned left into West Street as he reached the market square. The stalls fanned out around the market house. They were all just about to set up. There was still an air of calm as the traders awaited the rigours of the day. The legs of lamb were hanging as were rabbits and pigeons. Half pigs were on display. Linens were laid out. Fruit and vegetables were in open boxes. Bread had been baked. They watched Sam as he passed and he pushed his hands deep into his pockets. He'd not be the one who took an apple or a loaf from the stall. He'd felt the grief of getting caught once before. He could still feel it. He wasn't all that hungry, but even if he had been, he didn't feel brave enough today. A little more distant on the river and at the dock, clanging could be heard, ships working cargo, being loaded and unloaded at Packet Wharf and Corporation Wharf, and in the further distance, middle of the dock. Sam imagined he could hear his dad's voice louder than the rest. It wasn't likely, but the thought made him feel good. The sound of the salt works and the iron works and the boiler works were the sounds which dominated his life. He could hear, he could see the ship's masts and see the derricks moving. He turned right and headed towards a newer part of town, catching the acrid taste in the back of his throat. You never got used to it. It was the taste of the works. It was the taste of tar and burning coal. Sam flicked the tin lid with his toe as he walked along. He kicked it first with his instep and then the outside of his foot before it rested in the filth and the dung and the rut on the road. He started to skip as he went past the bigger houses, smelling the soot and smoke of the railway. To his left, the exchange was silent as if still in sleep. It towered above him, towered above the buildings around him. It was big and solid and permanent. He felt in awe of it, but was also happy it was there. He knew it mattered and the big decisions were made there. Maybe one day he'd been there making them, although he'd never been inside. He'd always been afraid to go in the door. A train was overhead as he went under the bridge. People rushed towards the station as Sam made his way across the square. He'd never been on a train. He would do one day. He could only dream about the places people go to, Leeds and even London. Maybe one day he'd travel that far. He loved these dreams, pieced them together as if they were fragments of overhead conversations. The past, Sam's life. Sam loved to live his life out in the streets. There was so much to see, to do, to avoid. Avoid getting caught, avoid getting hit, avoid getting in trouble for being out late. You grew up fast, but you had to. You felt alive. He liked getting out of the house, but even on the days he didn't feel like it, his mum wouldn't want her, him under her feet. She had to get on. He knew she never stopped. Cold days, hot days, sunny days, wet days. Sam lived his life outside. There was always something to do, and there was nowhere he didn't know, nowhere he couldn't find. There were all sorts of places he could hide, places other people couldn't find him. He loved it best when he could feel invisible. Sam's school was on Brougham Road. It wasn't so bad. Well, some days it wasn't too bad. And Sam was good at his lessons. He could read, he could count, he could remember big passages from the Bible. He turned up for clean and he kept himself clean, often taking stick with it but keeping himself out of trouble. Keeping out of trouble was what he tried to do every day. 
Mr. Richmond could be hard and forgiving. Even though he was good at school, he, he never liked it. He never felt much beyond a sense of fear. Smiling and laughing brought trouble. Being out in the yard at playtimes, too, came with danger. Sam was shy, not always a good thing to be, but his brothers looked out for him. Even though his big brother John had left a year since, Joe and Bob were still there. They were older than Sam and kept an eye out for him whenever he went, whenever they could remember to. He dreaded the times when they didn't seem to be around. Sundays were at the chapel just near the meat market and with the police station right next door. Sam found the services long, found it hard not to fidget, couldn't wait to get out, couldn't wait to hurry past the police station and get on with the more fun parts of the day. He learned to be God-fearing, to be in fear of God. The consequences of not doing so sounded terrifying. He'd meet his friends afterwards, the ones that had gone to St Hilda's Church or St Mary's Cathedral or the Baptist Tabernacle. They all finished about the same time. Wherever they'd been, they all emerged in the same state, bleary-eyed, desperate to get outside, and they'd all try to keep their best clothes clean, but they could never manage it, and they'd have that same sense of dread returning home to, to face the music. The best of all was watching the football market matches out on the recreational ground just near the school and border by Stockton Street. Teams used to gather and play until dark or meet up on a Saturday afternoon. The shouting of the lads sometimes mixed with the sad, sad sounds of the slaughterhouse, and if the wind blew from the west, the smell of the hide and skin yard could distract you from play. Sam looked on, but never quite had the courage to join in. He was happy in his thoughts, happy to have the place to sit and think. He was happy when nobody disturbed him, and was wary when they did. Some weekends he'd make it as far as the Linthorpe Road ground to watch Middlesbrough play, then lifted across the wall to watch the match. It was a long walk there, and a long, long walk back again, particularly on late afternoons in winter when it started to get dark, and he should have been in the house. His dad was sometimes taken, but most times he went on his own. His dad would be at work on the Hope and, Hope and Anchor. Albert Park always amazed him. It was the amount of space to run, to play, to breathe that fascinated him. It was a sundial. He'd never seen a sundial anywhere else. He thought he never would. And it was the fountain, great plumes of water flowing down over the gold leaves and the big, big birds. He'd never seen anything so beautiful. He'd never felt anything so refreshing as dunking his hands in the water and cleaning off the grime of the day. He tried to go there on match days, get there early and take it all in. The past, Sam's family. Sam's dad John had been born up in Liverton Mines and started working in the pit. His dad, another John, was a miner too and had been there all his life. His mum worked hard to keep them warm and fed and as clean as she could. It was a tough life, one to be endured, occasional moments of pleasure rare and to be seized. Winters could be bitterly cold. When the wind blew from the east across the German Ocean, it could be unrelenting. But spring could surprise you with its unexpected beauty, the hawthorn in bloom, the hedges teeming with new life. And on sunny summer Sunday afternoons out on the moors, lying back in the heather, could restore the limbs to life. The pit was just outside the village. It was a short walk from the house, a daily trudge there and back. Sam's dad could still remember the fear he felt on his first day, the noise, the cramped conditions, the closeness of the men, the heat, the dust, the choking dust. And then there was a feeling there that everyone else knowing what to do and how to do it except you, that gnawing, shaming awkwardness. He started off as a getter, gathering up the rocks, small stones and dust, and scooping into the wagons, crouched and cramped, a shame that this was still thought of as woman's work, or there were no women working in the mine. After a few months he became a hewer, earning a bit more pay, but, but feeling like he was really earning it, crouched with his pick, 
hacking at the rock, trying to see, trying to breathe, every muscle aching. Einstein was behind many fortunes, but not too much of the cash seemed to fall his way. He resolved to get out as soon as he could. It wouldn't be easy telling his mum and dad, but he would tell them. Sam's mum Mary had been born in the village too. Her dad was a miner as well, but a roof fall landed on his back and meant he couldn't go to work. Mary could remember him setting off the pit, but it seemed long ago. Her mum had taken him washing and sewing to make him meat, grown vegetables and opened her rabbit and pigeon dropped off in the early morning on a Sunday with never a word said. She'd been bright at school, enjoyed her lessons and the schoolmaster had taken a shine to her, talking to mum and dad about the possibilities for her. But the needs at home had been too much. Money was always tight. There never seemed to be, to be any about. With Mary helping with the laundry work and picking up some sewing, th this helped a bit. Mary and John had known each other since they were kids. Mary's family house on Down Street was just around the corner from John's family home on Liberton Road. No one was far from anyone in Liberton Mines, except for some of the farm kids who lived out on the moors. It just seemed natural that she'd get together. They'd, they'd always got along. Their wedding day had been a happy one. They were delighted to be together, and it showed. The vicar commented on it in the short church ceremony. Afterwards, both families gathered at the welfare with friends for sandwiches, ale and a few songs. They both still remembered it fondly. They spent their first night at John's parents' house and stayed there to give him a chance to get on their feet. Their first child was also John. He was named after his dad. Mary gave birth one hot afternoon in the upstairs room, helped by Mrs Wilson, who always seemed to be there when a baby was born on the street. John had sat outside in the yard on the back wall, the bedroom window open, every sound from Mary causing contraction in the pit of his stomach, every scream filling him with dread. Mary had listened to every word from Mrs Wilson, hung on to each one for comfort amidst the searing pain. She listened even when the blood loss meant she thought she was going, going somewhere better where the pain might end. When little John was born, she instantly loved him, but she didn't feel she had the strength to hold him, to watch him, to feed him. But, but somehow she did. It was soon after John and Mary decided they wanted a new life, a better life. They knew any life for them would be a hard life. John had a mate with a job in the docks in Middlesbrough where jobs were plenty as the port grew, and with it the town. So one October morning, with the help of John's dad, they put their few possessions on a cart and made their way to Loftus radio station for the journey to town, the guard packing their stuff in the guard's van before they went to take their seats. The arrival had been shocking, just the noise, the number of people who were in and around the station and the streets outside. John's mate had helped them carry the stuff to their room in West Street. Sussex Street was heaving, so was South Street. They'd never seen so many people. The journey seemed to take forever as they pushed their way through to their new home. And it was the first time they had a place of their own. And, and they made it a home, the family growing to four boys with Sam, a blessing born, after their only daughter Isabel was born. Uh, sadly stillborn, and they were grieving in their home for the first time. Mary never quite recovered her joy in life and felt weaker with the birth of every child, but she worked hard as she always did, keeping the house clean, making meals, keeping the kids clothed and warmed as best she could, and taking other people's sewing and laundry to bring in extra money, as there never seemed to be quite enough. She was a regular at chapel and saw to it the boys were too. John loved the work in the docks, being outside, being able to straighten his back, gulping the air without choking. The decision to move had been taken together, but it was the right one for him. He had to look after himself, of course, the work was hard, the hazards were many, but he'd good mates, and a few pints in the unicorn, the hope and anchor made life worth living. He was earning better money, and some weeks he did well with overtime. 
being moved up from dockers' labour to shipmen had helped ease the money worries, which were never far away. The past, arrival. 12th of August, 1889, Middlesbrough, England. Sam could hear them before he could see them. It was the sound of cornets and drums and of loud, excited chatter. He picked up the pace along Albert Road. He, he couldn't wait. Above the hubbub, whenever the music stopped, he could hear a strong, steady voice. Blessed by the Lord, Sequoia's oil, a health miracle, prairie flower. As he got closer, he could see the crowd, feel its energy as they clustered tightly around the medicine man's painted wagon. He could smell the crowd, the damp, the smokiness, the grime, the smells of lemon oil, bergamot and vinegar, and of tobacco and stale beer. It was the smell of his mother, of his father. It was the smell of home. It was the smell of the town. The wagon rocked as the crowd pushed forward, causing Sequoia to flex and maintain his balance expertly on top of it. He never missed a beat as he spoke above the heads of those who had gathered, and occasionally looked people squarely in the eye. Some of them held his gaze, others looked down in awe. As Sam swayed with the movement of the crowd, he found himself at the front. Sequoia towered above him as he stood on the wagon, the words Sequoia's Prairie underneath where he stood. His voice filled the air. It sounded exotic and at the same time reminiscent of the family from Red Roof who had moved into the street. Or maybe it was a voice from somewhere else. Somewhere not foreign, but from somewhere not around here. The sound of somewhere else. Around Sam's streets there were lots of different voices, lots of different accents. Everyone from somewhere, but not always from where they said. Invented lives, embellished lives. They were more exciting than the real lives lived. Being in Sikor's presence felt special, very special. It felt mystical. It felt full of opportunity. It felt magical, miraculous even. Whatever happened today, there was a sense of being alive and open to the unexpected. Who will be first? Sam could feel the crowd's tension, its nervous energy. A man emerged, unshaven, his face a strange mixture of fear and excitement. He was shown to a chair. His hat was removed and his head was t tilted back. The drummer laid down his drum and moved across. Sikor held up his medical bag so that all could see. He pulled out an elixir, an amber liquid in a clear glass bottle, and encouraged the man to drink it. The drummer looped his leg across the man's left leg, put his boot across his left thigh, and pushed downwards, holding each wrist in a tight lock. Sikor approached the man from the back. The crowd felt silent as they saw the pliers, big pliers. Sikor first put his hand on his forehead, and then to his jaw, tilting back the head and opening, them wide, opening wide the mouth. The pliers were on the tooth, then with a swift movement the tooth was out, the man's body spasming in the chair, the gargled scream, the flow of blood, the rapid movement as the pliers were held up with a flourish. A liquid was poured down the man's mouth, the, the spilling, the spitting, the blood on the ground, the cotton pad applied the tooth cavity, the man getting up very slowly, hand to his mouth, showing triumph and pain. The minister was there, dog collar on his tweed jacket, on under his tweed jacket, he was repeating Sikor's phrases and murmuring his assent, blessing the word, adding to their meaning, providing reassurance. He'd gasped as the tooth was extracted and triggered a gasp in the crowd, a gasp too. The minister went up to the man, put his hand on his shoulder and blessed him. The pliers were dipped in ammonia, then, who's next? Another man slowly edged forward, looking fearful, and the show was repeated. More would come forward as the day wore on. Sam had seen enough and was drawn to Moses as he always was. He was glad he'd no toothache and would have kept very, very quiet if he did. Moses cut a slight figure resting on the edge of the wagon. Cornet casually held in his right hand, ready to raise his lips when he got the cue. 
Sam shuffled over. Moses pulled out a wooden stool from behind the wagon for Sam to sit on, passed him a sticky toffee and put his hand on Sam's shoulder. Not a word was said. Nothing needed to be said. Moses never used many words, but somehow always seemed to say so much. Sam drank in the way he dressed, the way he moved. The books buckskin fringing from Moses' sleeves tickled Sam's cheek. It felt like the sun was shining. As a kindly unmined face looked over him, Sam had never felt so happy. He felt deep, deep contentment and peace. If only every day was like this. The past, Moses' life. Moses only ever told a version of his past. It was a version with some small gains of truth, but one that owed most to the penny dreadfuls, the dime novels they called them in Canada, and to the imagination of Sikor, who'd never been west of Queenstown. He'd played a part all his adult life. He was the savage, the Red Indian. He played along with it, although he'd never been a mountain man, or fought outlaws, had a last stand, or any of the things expected of him. The truth was his people had tried to adapt to change, to face the future, and to accommodate other people from different parts of the world who were flooding into Ontario for a new life, to give up so much for a peaceful life. It all seemed so long ago now. It seemed like it had been a different life, someone else's life. He'd been proud to be part of the Wolf Clan, an Iroquois, a Mohawk named Skaranyati, born in Grand River, Grand River Territory, the Six Nations Reservation, where his father moved the family before he was born. The reservation had been formed as the Europeans arrived in larger and larger numbers, first in Toronto, York in the earlier days, and in St. Catharines, then getting closer and closer, establishing Hamilton and Burlington and towns along the Great Lake. As Brantford developed, land was taken and divided with farming families. They cleared the forests, built the cabins, then permanent homes, setting up to stay and never leave. As he grew older, at night the longhouses Moses found himself arguing with his father and raging at his mother. At times he felt ashamed of his feelings inside. The wolf clan had been humiliated, their ways were dying out, their young men were heading to the cities to the south in America for construction jobs and wages. Soon nothing would be left of them. No one would remember the wolf clan, how they had lived, nor the lands they'd travelled across, their, their traditional hunting grounds in which lives were governed by the seasons, the movement of the deer, the elk, migration of the ducks, and how plentiful were the fish in the rivers and lakes. Moses' schooling didn't make things easier. At the time he felt shame of his language, of his people, of his family, of how they lived. He felt dislocated from his parents, disorientated his beliefs, part of neither civilization. The wolf clan had fought with the British in the Revolutionary War to the South. He'd heard it in the stories of the elders, recounting the deeds of their grandfathers. But what had this brought them? It felt like nothing. When he left school, he started working construction jobs around the horseshoe, the towns and cities around Lake Ontario. While in Toronto, he got work playing an Ogallaga Sioux in a Wild West show in Woodbine. The Sioux were a Plains tribe based in America of ways he knew nothing. It didn't seem to matter. It was only a show. He toured Canada and, the no and Northeast America before getting a steamer from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Liverpool and beginning the European tour, a Sioux headdress became central to his character. It was while the show was in Bristol that he met Sikor, got to talking, got a better offer, and decided to take up with him and stay in England. He, he liked the place, despite the weather. Sikor was quite something, mesmerising. He was no Native American, more likely a native of Bristol, but putting on a show was, was the thing. Truth was just the thing that people wanted to see. 
to cause medicine, medicine companies travel around the towns and cities of England, then across to Ireland and back, leaving and entering Liverpool, the city coming by now familiar. Moses liked the rhythm of life, the routine of arriving in a new place, of announcing themselves, seeing the excitement build, setting up, performing, selling and then packing up and leaving for the next place. Being part of the company was like having a new family. Nothing was real and yet strangely he found meaning and acceptance. His mother was a healer and he could see through Sikor, but nobody seemed to mind and what was the harm in it? Everybody needed to believe in something and he loved to see the smiles on the faces, the trust in the eyes of the people who stepped forward. Remembering his music from the mission school, Moses felt he'd discovered who he was. Sikor boasted that Moses was his tomahawk Indian cornet player. And surprisingly, in this make-believe life, Moses found happiness. He'd found meaning. The past, Sikor's world. Sikor was proud of himself, proud of Sikor's medicine company, proud of Sikor's medicine show, the people he employed, and the people he dazzled as he travelled around the country, bringing joy and excitement and hope and relief wherever he went. The length of breadth of Great Britain and across in Ireland, people knew his name, had faith in him, looked to succor to cure their ills and bring some light into their world. He was a man who'd written his own story and kept writing his story, adding flourishes to the tale and the spectacle as he grew into the role. Each time he put on the linen brown shirt with a low collar, he felt his heart swell, felt the hand on his shoulder of his Native American forebears. Each time he pulled on his buckskin breeches, western boots, tied his tie and wrapped himself in his fringed buckskin jacket, he felt more than ready to face the world talk to the world, inspire the world. Whenever he wavered, felt uncertain, putting on his wide-brimmed hat got him ready to perform. He was Sikor, although now one of the Sikors, as business had grown and he needed to get more than one show on the road. He was built, his mum and dad, from way back in the day, in what seemed like a world away, a different time and a different person. And he'd been more Celsius Bill than Buffalo Bill in those early days, as he discovered who he was, and decided to invent himself as who he wanted to be. He was Sikor the original, and still the best. He'd loved the American West more than the English South, and inhabited the West without ever leaving home. In Old Portsmouth he'd read Maleska, the Indian wife of the White Hunter, the only book that had interested him at school, and was far from being a school book. He was obsessed with it, and kept going back to it, rereading it and working out the meaning of the words he'd not seen before. He was often to be found waiting with his dad outside the pubs of Spice Island, the Somerset Hotel or the Star and Garter on Broad Street on the Point. He'd listened to the stories of the men coming back from the St. Lawrence River over Virginia's and other American ports. The stories of the mountain men, the outlaws, the lawmen, and Bill's fascination that native peoples had no ways. <coughs> Bill told the stories in the schoolyard and on the streets. He saw the excitement in the eyes of the other boys. He invented Sikor and made him the central figure in the stories. Then he became Sikor. He was the centre of the action. They were his stories, his life, well after a fashion. Piece by piece, story by story, he imagined a life that became real for him. When one of the boys in school de Bellier, Bill, Sikor, put together a potion from the ingredients in his mum's scullery, he made it up, but it was drunk with gratitude. The story of the cure began to spread. Sikor could trace his success, his Indian oil, his prairie flower, his Indian dentrifice, back to that day. It was the beginning of his new life. He met Moses in Bristol, down by the Great Western Steamyard, Steamship Yard, where Brunel's SS Great Britain had been built and launched. It was rumoured to be up in Liverpool at the same time, 
and steamed across from New York. Secor could imagine the launch and the crowd that would have gathered. He could always generate his own publicity, but loved to work the crowds others had created and win them over, bring them over to his side. When the medicine show left for Swindon, Moses came along. Swindon was a place where they always did well with the great Western railway workers. They were always ready to spend and be entertained. Moses became one of Secor's hires, his best hire, and more than that, a friend. He was a big hit in Swindon, drawing people towards him while barely saying a word, but he was a big, big hit. There was something about his inner calm, his sense of contentment that made Sikor feel better. There was his knowledge, his heritage, he was real. Sikor listened to him whenever he could. He would always want to hear more about his life, of his people. Sikor would ask all manner of questions and learn from him, even though he would never listen to anyone else, not even his own father. For Sikor, life was a fight. His success had never been noticed. Of course it had. It had been noticed, all right. He reveled in his fame, the newspapers, the posters, and out on the street. People wanted to get in on his action, wanted to, create, to profit from what he created, and Sikor would fight, always fight, to protect what he'd built. He'd become a wealthy man, and he planned to stay one. The Past, Departure, 15th August, 1889, Middlesbrough, England. The news had travelled across the town like a lightning bolt. There was complete disbelief. No one wanted to believe it. On that cold grey morning, they all knew deep down it was true. He had arrived in the town full of life, full of promise, an exotic figure, a Mohawk warrior in their midst. He had lost his breath, he would lost his strength eventually. He would entered the infirmary. The good Lord had taken him. Here he was now back among us, but Moses Carpenter was dead. Some said an angel was watching over him at the last. Stories were shared and grew in their detail and complexity with each telling. They were told in the alehouses, the kitchen tables, in the schoolyards, and right across the town. Moses had performed miracles, he could wrestle wild beasts, he could curse in many languages, he could speak in tongues, he could perform extraordinary acts of kindness, his voice could be heard on the wind, he touched everyone's life, he still did. The streets were lined with people, with droves and droves of people, all the way from St Paul's Church to the cemetery. The rain fell on them as they stood along the road, all the way from the infirmary to the cemetery, there were no gaps in the throng. Legs were dangling from window ledges. Boys sat on shed roofs. In the workhouse, young faces were pressed against the glass of every window. There was excitement as well as sorrow. There was a sense of anticipation. This was a day like no other anyone could remember. The town had stopped the mayor's funeral, but, but this was something else. The sound of floor, four black horses, 69 tipped hooves hitting the stone of the road. They cut through the din. Their arrival felt sudden, although the movements were slow. They were pulling the hearse with the casket slowly along the street. Their movements controlled but impatient. The plumes on their heads forlorn in the rain. The harnesses dotted with raindrops. The crowd pushed back to make space. Bodies pressed into bodies. The fine mist from the horses' nostrils blowing into their faces. The groom holding them back seemed to the edge of losing control. The coffin visible through the side of the glass in the hearse. The procession was slow and unsteady, then quicker, then slower, as horses were reined back. Two policemen walked in front, urging the crowd to move, trying to bring some sort of order to the chaos on the street. Their whistles peeped, they blew them repeatedly, threateningly. Their voices were strong, their words were commanding. Their truncheons were held horizontally as they pushed people back. They made a difference of, of a sort. Sikor walked behind the coffin, and the people fell silent as he passed. He seemed from a different world, not their world, a more exotic world of adventure. He looked distraught. His eyes were sunken, his face ashen. 
The buckskin jacket and trousers were stained with rain. The water ran from the wide brim of his hat, his tie tightly knotted and squeezing against his neck, his boots hitting the ground and tapping out a steady, solemn pace, his gold watch chain catching in the dim light. The minister walked beside him, prayer book in his hands, gazed straight ahead. He was dressed in black with just the white dog collar. Whosoever motored had worshipped in life, he would be an Anglican in death. People moved their caps and their hats and averted their eyes downward, heads bowed in a mark of respect. They were used to the rituals of Greece. They were used to funeral cortages passing, but not used to a funeral like this. Behind him walked the band, the music mournful, all Lang Syne tearing at the heart and touching the soul. No one played the cornet, no one had the heart to play it. No one could play it as Moses had. They passed and the crowd surged forward. People were squeezing and pushing through the cemetery gates. Sam couldn't breathe. He thought he would fall, straining his sinews to stay upright, trying to get a sense of when he'd be able to inhale once more, afraid that he too would die at any minute. People started to fan out. Breathing became easy. He gulped in the air, took big deep breaths of it and coughed as his body reacted. He steadied his feet but to keep moving lest he be trodden to the ground. He could see only legs and backs in overcoats. He strained to see and hear the words. He could only make out the rhythm of the minister's speech. He felt the familiar pattern of the words of death of transition to the next life. He could guess the words. He knew the service. Sam was shocked at how he felt. He was completely overwhelmed. He hadn't been aware he'd felt anything. To his surprise, the crowd stopped and stood still and mourned. Sam found he was weeping, openly weeping. Big tears were running freely down his cheeks. His legs were too heavy to move. This was what it meant to lose someone, to lose someone he couldn't imagine not being there. Sam never cried. He never ever cried. He'd do anything to hide it, but standing there among the crowd, and yet alone, completely empty, who would look out for him now? The past settling up and moving on. 16th August 1889, Middlesbrough, England. The next day, Sikor walked through the big front door to the North Riding Infirmary on Newport Road. His hat was on straight, his boots were clean, his back was straight as he walked along the passage, feeling that every eye was upon him, disapproving of him and everything he stood for. He found the nurse's station and asked where to find the clerk, settled Moses' account with cash, but he kept an embroidered pouch that was in his breeches. He turned and tried to keep his pace steady as he walked towards the main doors. He fought an urge to run. No good had ever come from anyone going into hospital. Sikor avoided them at all costs, except today. He turned to the right as he left the infirmary, then right again and hurried towards the cemetery once more, accepting words of condolence from people on the street as he went. He didn't really know what to say to them. Moses' passing had really got to him, but he didn't want to say it out loud, not to himself, not to anyone. He muttered thanks for their concern. They clearly meant what they were saying. He again fought the urge to run as he made his way past the workhouse. Like the hospital, this was another place he spent his life trying to avoid. He kept his focus on keeping a steady pace, lost himself in the rhythm with his eyes looking dead ahead. He called in at the Eastgate Lodge and saw another clerk there, reaching into his pouch for the cash to settle the accounts. He couldn't wait to leave, but he tried to keep his speech slow, confident, in command. He crossed the street to the undertakers and settled a bill there too. Every place he visited that morning was a place he'd rather not be. He loved life, loved being free, and he wanted to keep it that way. He'd settled his dues. He'd been around death too long. 
He could feel the chill of it deep down in his bones. He'd done right, the right thing by Moses. It was time to move on. Back to the present. Charlie barked and I was back with it. I shivered and felt cold deep down in my bones. I dragged my sluggish thoughts back to the present. I tidied the grave. I wasn't sure why. Gathering fallen leaves and straightening the feathers. It just felt like it felt like being part of something, something unfinished. I slipped Charlie onto the leaves as another dog came near. I looked at my watch. I'd better get moving. I zipped my jacket up a little further and upturned my collar to protect my cheeks and chin from the drizzle that had started to come down. A question wouldn't leave me. Who was looking after Moses' grave and why? And why did I feel quite the way I felt? Did others feel it too? So the, the author's note, um, this story is a reimagining based on some real characters and, and actual events. Sikor was a revered Indian medicine man who sold his cures across Great Britain and Ireland, finding the Sikor Medicine Company in 1887. He was an advertising genius, although one thing he didn't advertise was that he'd been christened William Henley Hartley. Sikor's products, which some would consider quack remedies, were sold at his travelling medicine show, these were raucous events with music and entertainment. Sikor is also reputed to, per reputed to have performed amateur dentistry, dentistry at his shows. Moses Carpenter was born Sky Yonyati in Ontario, Canada, of the Mohawk tribe of the Six Nations, considered a Red Indian in less culturally aware times. He was a member of Sikor's travelling show. Very sadly, he died on the 15th of August, 1889, in the North Riding Infirmary in Middlesbrough, having contracted pneumonia. There's not much information about Moses' early life and how he came to be in England. This part of the story is from my imagination, save for his origins in the Six Nations Reservation in the Grand River ter Territory in southern Ontario, Canada, not too far from where we partly raised our own family. There was a huge turnout of the townspeople for Moses' funeral. Possibly 10,000 were there. A poem was written and inscribed on the gravestone. Feathers had been laid on his grave from that day to this. It's rumoured that someone promised to tend Moses' grave for the rest of their days. Maybe they did. Maybe their family do still. Sam is a fictional character. The streets of Middlesbrough where he lived, learned, worshipped and prayed are real streets, albeit some can only be seen now in the plans of the developers, reclaiming old sites in the St Hilda's area, Old Middlesbrough emerges from its planner-led slumber <laughs> once again. His family's story is a fiction too, but reflects the flood of people coming to mid-19th century Middlesbrough for a better life. In Sam's family's case, they leave behind the back-breaking grind of the ironstone mines for a life above ground and decent wages for those who worked hard and kept an eye on those who would relieve them of their pay. People from Wales and Ireland came to live and work and add to the town's story. But people moved in large numbers from towns and cities from English rural counties like Norfolk, where farmers were in, farming was in recession, and Cornwall, where tin mining skills could be adapted for iron ore and coal. In Sam's time, St Hilda's was a vibrant place, even though the town had expanded south of the railway line and some of the town's leaders' focus had literally gone south. It was populated by people with origins in the countryside and mining settlements of the north uh, of England and also from Wales and Scotland, as well as rural Ireland. They bought their labour and their energy and their dreams, and they set up places of worship and sporting clubs and populated their pubs. 
The pubs where Sam's dad John had a beer or two after work were real pubs, and there are many there were many real pubs, reportedly one for every hundred and fifty people in the town. Names like the Highland Lad and Carmarthen Arms reflect places where people flooded into the town where they were from, although Irish pub names seem to have been in short supply. The Turf Arm reflected arms reflect a passion for racing, the Dock Hotel and the Steam Packet the nature of some of the work in the town, and the recreation a sigh of relief after a hard day's work. Uh, Charlie is based on a much-loved wee dog. Uh, pleasure in the early morning walks in Linthorpe Cemetery in all weathers provide the origin of the story. It's a nature reserve and provides urban woodland. For a dog, there are always interesting sniffs. We stumbled across Moses' grave, saw the feathers. I read the information board and it went from there. Before this, I'd not heard of Moses Carpenter. I told his story to family and friends. It was one which no one I knew had heard and I felt it was worth telling, even as a fiction. <laughs>